Welcome, Let's Run Nation. We're glad you're back for another week. We hope you're healthy. It's time for Let's Run.com's weekly track talk podcast. There may not be a lot going up and running, but we will keep you entertained. There's plenty to talk about, folks. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson welcoming you to the show. Kenyan marathon star Daniel Wanjuru is banned. The Let's Run.com quest to find the greatest name, the greatest American distance runner. Our tournament is down to the Sweet 16. The NCAA has banned all virtual workouts. Wisconsin has banned NCAA 1,500-meter champion Oliver Hoare from ever competing for them again. And there's plenty of threads from the message boards that entertained me last week. Lance Armstrong is a bigger ass than we think. A new record has been set from driving a car from New York City to L.A. And Premier League star Jesse Lingard has run a 5K. Guess his time. Weldon and Jonathan, welcome to the show. And Robert, we have a special guest at the end. For the majority of the podcast, Madeline Manning, the 1968 Olympic gold medalist, a woman we determined we should know way more about and everyone should know more about. It's unbelievable that she's not more prominent than she is. First American ever to go sub two, hold the American record for 15 years, winner of four Olympic trials. I mean, she got was getting faster. In, two, in 1980, she went sub two to win the Olympic trials. You know, it was, you know 1968 when she wins the Olympics, it was uh, over two. I mean, amazing story. She's been to every Olympics. The world indoor record in her first ever 800. That's a great story that she tells on the podcast. So we got Madeline at the end, and Robert had fake news, saying nothing's going on in the running world. Clearly, the anti-doping authorities are still working. They're working hard. And now running's going mainstream. I mean, soccer, articles are being written about what soccer players are running 5Ks in. So the running world, pro runners, you guys better get out there and compete. Otherwise, the runners are going to be taking, the, the soccer players will be taking all the glory. Well, did you guys hear about this? Actually, Robert didn't even tease it. The New York Times article, Nat Futterman had an article today about virtual drug testing. Have you guys heard about this? That's a joke, right? No. Here's what they do is they mail out a drug testing kit, and then they have the athlete, they basically have a video chat between the tester and the athlete. The athlete shows video of their bathroom. They don't have to show them urinating to fulfill the sample, but then they have like a temperature, a piece of paper they, they put in the sample to like test the temperature and that's supposed to show them that it was like provided immediately as opposed to like a refrigerated one that they can pull out from the medicine cabinet. And then they have this thing they put on their arm that takes some blood and the athlete then mails the test back. And I'm a little skeptical, but it's actually, it's interesting to see you saw to get creative about trying to come up with ways to test people. Wow. And these will be permanent job cuts because now the people who used to go and watch you pee one of the most unenviable jobs in the world. Those will be cut permanently after this is over because who wants to watch someone go urinate? Well, I, this is the thing. I thought it was funny. I was like, when I first heard about virtual testing, I'm like, are they just going to show have people, the athletes, emailing videos of themselves peeing like to USADA? Is this going to happen? And then I thought, this is right. There's a scandal just waiting to happen if the, these t- tapes fall into the wrong hands. And then they're like, no, they don't actually have to film the urinating. So crisis averted there. Let me interrupt here, guys. For the record, I wanted to drop the Madeline Man- Ma- Manning 
interview, which is fascinating, a fantastic talk. Although you guys made me ask all the difficult and controversial questions, I had to ask the Castro Semenya questions, the steroid questions. I asked it all. I, didn't like, I wanted to drop it as its own podcast. I like to drop the interviews as a separate podcast, but I guess we'll have it at the end of the show. But now we have like probably new audiences, maybe some senior citizens, some of Madeline's friends. Madeline herself are probably listening to the podcast, and they're going to hear, they're going to think, what is wrong with American society? This guy, Jonathan Gold, is talking about people peeing into a cup to start off a podcast. Madeline, normal. Off limits on the Let's Run.com podcast, people. Multiples of six challenge, urinating into cups. We cover it all. Hi, folks, I am a little bit worried being 46 years old, worried about the 29-year-old Jonathan DeGault. John, are you okay? I'm looking at you now. It looks like you haven't shaved since last week's podcast. <laughs> I haven't shaved for a month, Robert. Uh, well, I'm just, just checking in. But before we get into the show. Wait, women, he's looking good. He's looking kind of a little more manly. Uh, John, we are worried about your well-being. Just, I'm fine. You're the one with a kid on the way, Weldon. I worry about you and Catherine. Like, I, I'm doing fine. Yes, my wife is due in three weeks from this past Monday. Any tips out there? I can't go to these parenting classes. There's no parenting classes. So anything I need to know, I figure I'll just wing it. I was born six weeks early. My parents admitted no classes, so it can't be that hard. But anyone got any tips for child rearing or childbirth, actually, email me. Uh, well, then, FYI, you will not be giving birth. So I have thought about writing the Let's Run Not Guide to Parenthood, Parenthood, me, the web programmer, Eric and Steve. I'll have children, so maybe I'll do that before the baby comes. But let me plug the sponsors. Folks, we know you need new shoes. We know your local running store is closed. Most states, it's not an official essential business. So go to letsrun.com slash shoes. Find the best prices, the best reviews. And if you don't need shoes right now, go there right now and just review your shoes. Help others out. And then the real sponsor is our friends at The Feed. Whether you need an immunity boosting pack or a fresh supply of the Martin Sports Drinks, or check this out. How about their new AeroFit Respiratory Muscle Training Device? If you need that or basically anything, we had a PR lotion that we were talking about last week. Go to thefeed.com slash let's run. Again, that's thefeed.com slash let's run. And you'll be linked right to the immunity pack page. 15% off your total order if you go to that page. So save money and boost your immune system. And we've got a link in the show notes as well. All right, guys, let's talk about, I would say this is the newsiest development of the week. It came out on Tuesday. Daniel Wanjiro, who is the 2017 London Marathon champion, that's the one year out of the last five that Elliot Kipchoge did not win the race. He was provisionally suspended for an athlete biological passport violation. And just want to put for the record, Wanjiro has denied it. He said his in a statement released by his agency, he said, I feel I am already seen as sinner of as a sinner of doping, but I am not. I am innocent. Being charged of guilt is just easy, and now proving being unguilty is hard. Knowing I have never used anything, I have faith everything will be all right. But I mean, I think it's worth noting, this is the immediately what I thought when I saw this is another yet another Kenyan has been suspended. And if you look at the list of the athletes who have either been provisionally suspended or had a decision confirmed against them and, and they've been handed bans over the last just 12 months, it's astounding. I mean, Kenneth Kipkamoy, third place in Boston last year, he's been provisionally suspended. Alfred Kipkader, 142-800 guy, he's been provisionally suspended. Wilson Kipsang, 
former world record holder in the marathon. He's won London, Tokyo, New York. He's he's been suspended for a whereabouts failure and for tampering violations. Vincent Yator, he's a 13.04-27.25 guy. Sammy Kitwara, 204 marathoner. Abraham Kiptum, former world record holder in the half marathon. I mean, it, it's it's good that we're suspending these athletes, but it's just crazy. It's an epidemic in Kenya. But John, and that you're just talking about the last year. What I think of is the big, big names. I mean, Wanjiru is a pretty big name. You win London, that's pretty big. But, you know, before that, you had Rita Jeptu, Jemima Songong. Emily Chabat, World Class Country Champion, and Asbel Kiprop. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I didn't even, I totally disagree. I saw the news, I didn't even click on the link. I was like, uh, not a big enough name for me anymore. It's got to be a Rita Jeptu. I even forgot Wilson Kipson got popped. When Juro, he won London. London is the best marathon in the world, but I just kind of thought, well, not even big enough name. And, and Kenya to stir the pot. I just don't know, like, what has to change in the culture there? Because clearly this is, it's been a problem for years, and it's still a problem, and athletes keep getting banned. Is it, is it, is it that they're not educating them properly? Is it that the management and the coaching, coaches need to be cleaned out? Like, what's the issue here? Uh, John, the issue? Who is to blame? How do we fix this? Because clearly it's not, I mean, people are getting caught, but the issue is not going away. Can you say poverty? Greed? Yeah. Money? Money, John. Okay, I'm going to do a plug. I was listening to the, I think it's the Clean Sport Collective podcast, because Bob Kennedy was on it. It's Bob Kennedy, Adam Goucher. People of my generation will love this one. It was great. And at some point they asked, about doping because it's called the Clean Sport Collective. And K- Kennedy was debating, you know, which guys in front of him might have been dirty and that sort of stuff. And then he's like, look, obviously I wouldn't do it. I'm not excusing them, but I didn't grow up in a mud hut either. So if you're living in a mud hut, a substance farmer, and you're kind of presented, hey, take this stuff, and maybe it's presented to you, everyone else is taking it. This is how you get good at running and make a bunch of money. I, I honestly don't think that incentive isn't going to go away no I, I understand that but i guess what i'm saying is do you guys just write that off and say look this is going to be as as long as we have poverty in certain regions of the world and a massive incentive to dope that this is just going to be part of the system that we accept or is there a way to fix it well people dope in the united states too i just think the incentive is so much greater if you're like if this is your one chance out so i think we need to keep the better testing this is it's good that these people are being caught presuming that they're dirty. And this shows the need for drug testing everywhere in the world. The drug testing keeps getting better, and hopefully we catch more and more people. And then also people in Kenya, maybe there needs to be some education. Hey, it's not worth it. It's just not about the money. You know, God gave you gifts. If you listen to Madeline Manning, she talks about doping and how someone came to her as late, I think, 1980 or 1976 and said, hey, you could be the best ever. And she's like, great, yeah, you know, I'm already an Olympic champion. And they're like, no. You know, take a little something special. And she's like, no, I have gifts from God. God gave me these gifts. Why would I want to uh, like cheat? I want to be the best I can be. So maybe some education can be done in Kenya and everywhere. But I think the incentive is so great to cheat when you're coming from dirt poor poverty. One thing I'd like to know is why, and I've never, why is it so much higher in Kenya than Ethiopia? I've always assumed that the incentive to cheat would be similar 
Are they testing better in Kenya? Are they just looking the other way in Ethiopia? Or is there something different about the two countries? I mean, I know the population of Kenya is – one of them is much bigger than the other. Ethiopia is a lot bigger than Kenya. Uh, huh. Also, I think sort of it's like we have, you know, super clusters of corona. Like maybe doping becomes sort of endemic to a region and then there's a system and education and people – it's easier to do. So maybe once it takes over a place – Someone's like, oh, here's what so-and-so is doing. And is it wrong for me to say maybe when you have the cycling background, you have all these former Italian people who, who had connections to the cycling world, which is probably the dirtiest sport out there. They go into Kenya. They speak a little English. They can take hold a little bit better, coach the people there, dope them a little bit better than if they go into Ethiopia. People Obviously, people aren't speaking English. It's hard to speak American. So you don't have the, the, the cycling influence on doping. That's my wild theory there. That I know what you're saying, but it's a bit much to trace them all to like one group of agents because there's no proof. You're talking about the Rosas, so the background in cycling. There's no proof. They haven't been implicated. A lot of their athletes have tested positive, but other athletes who aren't in their groups have tested positive as well. So to blame it on one, even if it was proven that they had assisted some of their athletes in doping, which there's been no proof of, I think it'd still be unfair to say like, oh, they're the cause of all doping in Kenya because it extends beyond their group. Speaking of such, with the shutdown though, I've been on Instagram. I don't know. Maybe it'll turn into more like my wife. I was on there last night for some reason. Aspel Kiprop was on there. I was watching a video from Aspel. I still love that guy. He's my favorite 1500 meter runner. Is that bad for me to say? Still, John, he still protests he's, he's innocent. He's your favorite 1,500-meter runner, Weldon? He was the most beautiful 1,500-meter runner. If we talk about God giving people gifts, the guy was built like a gazelle. Yeah, it was pretty awesome to watch him in full flight. But it, well, it's interesting, though, because he's he's been he's been suspended. He's appealed. I, the AIU has said, look, we don't buy this explanation. There's really no reason why EPO should show up in one of your tests. You're banned for four years. And he's still steadfastly defiant, denying every day ever having doped, which I don't know. It's either he's been totally wronged here or he's just crazy and totally in denial. And I don't know which one it is. Well, I'm sure you lead towards him, towards him being. Well, I lean towards that he was a legitimate doper because, again, EPO doesn't usually just show up in your system. I think it's more likely that he was trying to maintain the last few years of his prime more than some, there's some oh. conspiracy to spike his sample. I need to call up a ex Olympic 1500 meter runner told me how, when did Kiprow get busted about a year and a half ago, John, I'd say it was three or four years ago. An Olympic 1500 meter runner told me they thought Kiprow was dirty. I never found out why they thought that, but they were obviously proven to be correct, at least according to the testing. So Weldon brought up Kiprop's name, but didn't bring up the relevant news. Kiprop has come up with a theory as to why he thinks he was framed for doping. And he believes that someone wanted to bust him after he defended the Rosas and the management system from doping allegations back in 2014. Here's Kiprop's statement from the nation, Kenya newspaper. I think the AIU saw me as a stumbling block to what they wanted to achieve. And someone wanted to find a way to bring me down. So, and then Kiprop f- further states that, because the testing in Kenya is not really the most um, straightforward. It's not done the way it should be. He was actually tipped off that he was going to be tested like the next day. So his theory is, if I was doping, quote, how could I have been so foolish to avail myself for the testing? Mark, you have not missed any doping tests. So he said that he knew they were coming. So if he was doping, he should have just avoided the test instead of being busted for the test. But I would assume he maybe just thought it was out of his system or something like that. 
Or that he could pay someone off with T-Money because he admits to paying the tester. But John, it was a small amount of money. If you're going to cover up an EPO test, it's going to be a lot higher than that. I don't know what the rate is for covering up an EPO positive, Robert. I, I need a scientist on here. If you're with the doping authorities or somebody at World Athletics, here's my wild conspiracy theory. I've always wondered this. And I assume these people are smart enough to do this, but I think there are genetic differences between people born at high altitude and people not born at altitude. I, I don't think that... My question is, are the, is the biological passport factoring in the differences between the Kenyans and maybe the way a Western person done? I, I think that the, their biological passport could look differently. So I, I sure hope that the, 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 the recognizant of the fact. I gave this theory to John offline. and John did point out, well, yeah, that's a decent theory. You would think that they would have be aware if there were any differences in the biological passport. But some people have actually tested positive for the drugs. It's not just an ABP violation. Right. No, I, I think it's a legitimate area of inquiry. But yeah, there are multiple the the list of people I listed off. It was more than just ABP violations on there. So, but it is worth noting Wanjiru his wasn't a ABP violation. While we're talking about corruption, I think this was actually from I meant to two weeks ago. I meant to talk about this last week, but. I thought it was interesting, guys. Did you see the story? I think it was on a number of outlets, but I saw it in The Guardian. There are people are trying to make a big deal out of this Japanese guy, Haruyuki Takahashi, um, who was given – he had an $8.2 million budget to help wine and dine Olympic officials to get the Olympics to come to Tokyo, which he was successful in. And people are like, look, this guy was bribing everybody, blah, blah, blah. And this guy, I, I, I kind of like his – He's he's like he's defended himself. He's like, look, I, I didn't bribe anybody, but I, I didn't pay any money to anybody. Is what he said. But he has admitted that he gave the DX, who are now under, they have been formally accused of accepting bribes for I think numerous things, John. But I don't know, maybe you know the specifics. But anyways, he's been accused of giving them expensive gifts. And I love this guy's quote: "Quote, you don't go empty-handed." That's common sense. But then he added, they're cheap. So cheap. the cheap gift that he gave one of the DX was a $46,500 Seiko, Seiko watch. So, you know, you go out to eat with the Olympic officials, probably take them to like, you know, a $500 per person restaurant and just give them, you know, a little, you know, you know how the mints come with you, John, with your dessert. You just hand him a $46,000 watch. That, that's not a bribe, even though you're giving him forty, basically $46,000. What do you mean that's not a bribe? To give someone f something a value of $46,000, that's a bribe. Like, I thought maybe this guy wined him and dined him, took him out to expensive dinners. That's still something of value, but, like, you can't go sell that. If you're given a $46,000 watch, you can then go sell it. If he flew them in, put them up in five-star hotels, took them out in, out in the town, stuff that they can't, like, then resell, whatever. I mean, th that's a lot less corrupt than it has been. But a forty, you might as well give him $46,000 or whatever the resale value of the watch is. He essentially gave him $20,000. I don't know what you can sell, resell the watch for. That's a bribe. I mean, I think the difficult thing about this whole bid process is it's not always an obvious line between what's a bribe and what's not. It's like, are you, if you're treating these people to a tour of your city, putting them up in five-star hotels, taking them to the nicest restaurants, giving them unlimited tabs, 
giving them these awesome behind-the-scenes experiences to try to pitch your city. I mean, none of that's a bribe, but then just handing them money to vote for you is a bribe. And, like, I don't know. It's just... It's also murky, all these bid bid processes. Well, you know, the the state of Georgia for the Mercedes Dome gave $700 million to the NFL owner. Um, all these NFL owners get hundreds of millions of dollars not to move their team away. It, it's amazing to me. Yes, I'm not condoning this. I, I brought that up. Well, of course, it's a bribe. It's absurd. We need to stop the corruption. But it's kind of interesting to me what is what is legal and not. As, as long as you put something on the contract like, hey, we're going to move our business away or our NFL team away. Okay, well, we'll give you $400 million to stay. Oh, that's perfectly allowed. That's just smart. The mayor's so smart to get this billionaire $400 million to keep his NFL team in our city. you know. And then people are perfectly fine with that. This is my Rojo's rant. Who are not, there are plenty of people who are not perfectly fine with it. I've been irate about this for 40 years. I'm, I'm tired of the welfare for the really rich people. Rojo's rant. They should pass a law in Congress somehow. You should not be building publicly financed stadiums for billionaires. Period. I agree with that, Robert. But if you want to build them for struggling track and field programs, it's all out for me. Wait a second, Robert. I'm now reading about the watches. It says he paid 46000 for Maybe he bought a bunch of watches and then gave them out. What if he's giving out like two thousand dollar watches? I mean, that's still a bribe. If it's a full bribe, that's still like five. Like, where's the difference? If you say it's a five dollar watch, that's just a little, you know, party favor. But if it's a five thousand watch, it's a bribe. Where do you draw that line, John? When you show up at the Boston Marathon, do you turn back the the jacket that they give you every year? They give me a Boston Marathon jacket. I mean, that's the thing. If you want to, if you want to consider that a bribe, then I've taken those. I've accepted the jacket. Or or next Olympics, I think Josh should pay for his tickets. Oh, if that. No. <laughs> I'll go if why won't you pay for my tickets, Robert Weldon, since you're my employer. It's a business expense. I'm fine taking the free tickets. I'm I'm fine taking them too. I'm okay taking the free tickets to the Olympics. I'd like to find a journalist who refuses free tickets if offered them to the Olympic Games when you actually intend on covering the Olympic Games for an outlet like Let's Run. Right, but some of these people could say, oh, you should pay for your tickets. Now, no one draws the line there, but it is interesting the difference how European journalists and Let's Run have done this will take a trip and disclose it, whereas like the old guard at Sports Illustrated looked very down upon that. You know, It's funny, I saw some of that come up with the canning of Grant Wall. Hang in there, Grant. All right, shall we get back to running? Because we're going through... Wait, wait, Weldon was mentioning Grant Wall. I just want to... Most people probably don't know who he is. He's the Sports Illustrated soccer writer. And I know a lot of people, Let's Run Visitors, don't actually believe I'm a real journalist, but I was a... Grant was my... I actually worked on the school newspaper at Princeton University, the Daily Princetonian. I was a journalist there writing game recaps, volleyball recaps, Football recapped. I think I covered a national championship in squash. Grant was my sports editor. They put you on the football beat, Robert? So, John, I, I was trained. I don't know if I actually did a football game. I know I did basketball a lot. Pete Carrill. News. He's lying about his re- embellishing his resume. Football surprise beat at any college sports paper. No, BS. Pete Carrill's 500 victory, John? I was there. I covered it. Bill Clinton was in our article. And, and it's true. John, print. Everyone knows print is sort of... It's always been sort of whatever. Robert was radio. I heard him. I was driving across New Jersey. I heard this like ACDC music come on. I'm like, my roommate goes, turn back on that song. And it's like, bum, bum, bum. And it's like, welcome everyone to Princeton football. This is Robert Johnson. Wait a second. 
You just happened to stumble onto Robert? Or yes. yes. True story. True story. That's amazing. I, I I was doing the football for the radio, you know, it was big time. Yeah. All right. Now I'm I'm sufficiently impressed. All right. What I want to talk about though is our greatest American distance runner of all time bracket. By the time this podcast comes out, we'll be in the Elite Eight. So these matchups that we're gonna discuss will be settled, but Wait, yeah, but last week we spent a lot of time talking about Madeline Manning, who's now our guest on this week's podcast, and how she would fare against Ajay Wilson. I didn't even realize they were matched up against each other in our bracket. How how ironic was that? That was that was the round of thirty two matchup, and I'm I've got to say I'm very disappointed in Let's Run Nation, folks. You guys made a mistake. What was the final vote tally there? It was Ajay Wilson sixty two point two percent to Madeline Manning. Madeline Manning, 37.8%. Robert, why, why is this such an, an outrage to you? Okay, Madeline Man- did win the Olympics, but the competition was not nearly as good as it is now. Ajay Wilson has been the best non-hyperandrogenous 800-meter runner in the world for the last three years. Medals at World Championships in 2017 and 2019. World Indoor Silver in 2016 and 2018. Those both would have been gold if Nian Saba hadn't been in the field. I mean, I guess you have to say that they were legally allowed to compete, Nian Saba and Semenya, so you, you have to measure Wilson against those. But she's been near the top of this event for the last several years. Really, really, the be- I don't know, the American record? I, I don't see how this is a huge travesty. I see the case for Manning over her. Why is this a travesty? Four Olympic titles for Manning. Four Olympic trials wins for Manning. First sub two in U.S. history. Okay, record. Also, is the first sub one fifty six in U.S. history. That's a lot faster. Uh, okay, and then you said the competition wasn't good. Well, maybe in sixty eight. Well, I guess she didn't medal in seventy two, seventy six. She didn't even make the final in those years. Yeah, I know. I wonder why. Have you guys looked at the at the at the who was winning in seven? Well, look at the 1980. Thank God we boycotted. She, she's disappointed that we boycotted 1980. Thank God she didn't waste her time going in 1980. 153 winning time. Like everybody ran like under 157. I think the whole field broke two, <laughs> two minutes. Fair, yeah. 76. I think 76 and 80. Every single person was an Eastern Bloc person. I, I, I actually got to pull these but up. But 76, she only ran 207 in her semi and she got dead lost. She didn't even She didn't run well. Remember, we just heard she got hurt, John. It's, I thought she said she that, got 172, Robert. We didn't ask about 76. The point being, John, she was an Olympic gold medalist, and she had staying power. She Then a full generation running later, when running was like more in the sort of current era, she won again in 1980. She won everyone in between. She set the bar. With today's training or whatnot, she's faster at 400 than Ajay. I mean, I think, look out. I personally would vote for her. All right. I, th- yeah. I think it's a legitimate opinion to have. I just don't think if you voted for RJ Wilson, I don't think you should be ashamed. I think that's a legitimate choice. RJ Wilson is an outstanding runner. But John, did you set that up on purpose when you were seeding that, that, that the two 800 stars would match up in that round? Yeah. Some of these are pretty interesting. We got Jim Ryan versus Matthew Centrowitz right of course now. It's intentional. Well done. This was very well thought out. I mean, Last week we were sort of criti- critical. Maybe it was just first level thinking of you know we gave you some rope and you appeared to um, attempt to hang yourself with it. Some of the seedings were c- criticized, but maybe you were thinking second order, like in the next round these guys will all f- and women will all face. I think off. about all of it. Ro- first of all, Robert had some input into the seedings, so I'm just saying. But 
Second of all, yeah, I was thinking about what would be comp- like Centrowitz versus Jim Ryan in the Sweet 16. That's a pretty compelling matchup, no? Meb versus Rupp? Like, it's exciting. Coburn Simpson. Okay, I've got the stats here. I stand corrected. 72, a West German one. But the next five spots were all Soviet bloc. 76, the entire final. Uh, and by the way, the uh, 70, well, 72 was one. So Madeline. Manning set the Olympic record of two flat in 1968. 72, they, it's a, another Olympic record, 158. But then 76, it gets crazy, 154-94. As the top eight women are all Soviet bloc, Eastern Europe, um, 154, the top seven ran 158 or better. But then 1980 is just a farce of a race. Look at this. Soviet Union goes 1-2-3, Steroids at its finest. Entire field under 159.2. Oh, wait. But there was one non-Eastern Europe person, an Italian, got eighth in 159.2. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like, you can tell, you can just tell the events that were tainted by doping because in pretty much every sport, in any event, performances 40 years later should be better. And in stuff like the throws or the eight, women's 800, the marks from 40 years ago were untouchable, which is, I mean, it's just sort of, you know, it's very obviously tainted. Yeah. So listen to the interview. Madeline talks about being approached by a U.S. coach trying to get her to do it. She turned it down. She probably could have had the world record. She thinks she, she was, she says that she thinks 152 is not po- impossible for herself or a talented American woman. Uh, I think it was impossible for her, but for, uh, I think it's probably impossible for anyone. I mean, even, even Kretach Filova only ran 153, and she was doped out of her mind. So, I I don't know. It, it's going to be a long time before, unless we see some sort of like shoe, you know, shoe revolution. Then you get sort of vapor flies or something in the in the 800. I think it's going to be a very very long time until we see a clean woman run 152, if ever. But here's the matchup I wanted to talk about: Sweet 16, Matthew Centrowitz, Jim Ryan. You've got the Olympic champion, Centro, Jim Ryan, Olympic silver in 1968, former world record holder in the mile and in the half mile. Where do you guys come down on this? There's been a debate on the message board. This is one of the most hotly anticipated matchups of the bracket so far. I'm stunned by the results here, right? Jim Ryan's crushing Centro. And again, this bothers me. I'm going with the Olympic gold as the pinnacle of the sport. I don't want to be like one of these football hosts that says if you don't win a Super Bowl, you can't, you know, you're not eligible for rings, baby. Anything as a quarterback, but I, I don't get the fascination. And I apologize because his son used to post on the website with Jim Ryan. Maybe I'm missing something, but this is what's interesting to me about about Madeline Manning. She won gold in '68. I'd never heard about her. All I ever hear about is Jim Ryan. He wins silver, right? You hear about Jim Ryan this, Jim Ryan that. You know, I, I guess it's because he had the world records. John, please tell me why. Jim Ryan is currently crushing Matthew Centrowitz. All right. Well, here, so there's a bunch of people arguing about this on the message board thread. I'm going to go to Colo Runner one two three, and this is his argument. He says, per Track and Field News World Rankings, Ryan was number four in, nine, in the fifteen hundred in nineteen sixty five, uh, and he was 19, he was eighteen years old at that time. Number one in nineteen sixty six. Number one in nineteen sixty seven. Number two in 1968, number seven in 1969, number six in 1971, number nine in 1972. That's two one number one rankings, one number two, and a total of seven top ten. He also set the world record in the mile twice, and and in the 1500. 
He won a silver medal at the Olympics in 1968, which might have been a gold if they had not had that race at Mexico City and had it at sea level instead. I think there's a reasonable argument for that. Whereas Centro, he looks at his world rankings, number eight, number five, number eight, number 10, number five. So he's never ranked higher than fifth, according to Track and Field News. It's a total of five top 10 rankings, which is two fewer than Ryan. The difference, though, obviously, is the medal record. Centrowitz has an Olympic gold. He's got a world championship silver. He's got world indoor gold. He's got a bronze at Worlds as well. And then the difference, but the difference here is like, I guess what it comes down to, Ryan didn't have the same highest level. Like the competition clearly is deeper and stronger right now. But Ryan also didn't have as many opportunities. He had two. He, I think he made three Olympic teams. One was he when he was a junior in high school. Another one in 68, which was at altitude. And then 72, he fell in the prelims. So he didn't really have as many opportunities, whereas Centrowitz has got, you know, world championships or Olympics three out of every four years. Actually, when I, when I hear those stats, John, I, I think, yeah, you know, he didn't have the world championships. He had the world record. He also had the U.S. junior record in the, in the 800 for, what, 50 years? So um, did he have an 800 in the world record too, John, or just a mile? It was the world record in the half mile, which I don't know if you convert it to an 800, whether it would have been the world record or not, but it would have been close. Hmm. I, I can kind of understand it now, I guess. And that's really the only close matchup. Most of these matchups in the Sweet 16 are complete blowouts. I think that's, that's the only one that's under 60% for, for the winner. Right now, Jim Ryan is winning with 59% of the vote. Matthew Sintowitz has 41. So I guess we're giving, um, you know, a lot of credit Robert, all these old timers—they love Jim Ryan. They're going to vote for him no matter what. But I could have sworn—I'm not sure who I voted for. But I thought Centro was winning when I voted. Maybe not. But look, here's the here's the argument: is Centrowitz? You never went into a Diamond League thinking, "Oh, Centro is going to win this," or you never really even thought he'd contend for the win in most Diamond Leagues. He was never—he's—he's ne- he's been close a couple times. You know, he almost won the Bowman Mile in 2015, but for the most part, he gets smoked in these Diamond League races. Jim Ryan. Any race in the world, he would walk into it. You would think this guy would win. Okay, if that's true, I'm actually being convinced now that Ryan is the right call, except for one question. If he was so dominant and so damn good, why does he only have three USA outdoor track titles? Did people not take it seriously back then? That seems weird to me. I don't know that answer either, but when I saw this in the show notes, Ryan versus Centrowitz, I thought Centrowitz would be winning the vote because I feel like our audience favors the more recent athletes. And remember thinking, oh, Ryan, like Ryan's the better athlete. Like in their generation, Jim Ryan was the better athlete. Matthew Centrowitz isn't the best of his generation. Obviously, there was more people, more people competing now. It's not an apples to apples comparison, but I can see how people are definitely voting for Ryan because he was a dominant miler of his generation. I'm a little surprised that Meb isn't close to Rupp. I mean, I guess, I don't know. Is it a, is it supposed to, is that a blowout in your minds? Like Meb, if you look what he's done in the marathon, he's won Boston. He's won Olympic silver to Galen Rupp's bronze. And he's won the New York city marathon. Galen Rupp has won Chicago, which I guess, you know, you go, you go look at the relative strengths of the field there, but I don't know. Meb, obviously Rupp's done a lot more on the track than Meb, but I'm just kind of surprised that's a total blowout. No, I think it's totally justified total blow-up. I mean, I talked about this in last week's podcast. Winning a marathon is, is, is in a major is, is giving way too much credit. Again, you know, I was saying you could be the 10th best runner and win a major. You could be the 20th best marathon in the world and win a major. Rob, I mean, look at the look at the track titles, John. Like, look at the track credentials between the two. Galen Rupp, 
you know, PRs, better at 1,500, 334, better at the mile, better at 3,000, way better at 5,000, and better at 10,000, half marathon. And so he's got a better PR than Meb at every single distance. U.S. titles, Meb, three. Rupp, nine. So all Rupp has on him, Olympic medals, two for Rupp, one for Meb. All Rupp has is one, all Meb has is one extra major. I guess you, people could consider New York and Boston to be superior to Chicago win, but I don't know, man. Yeah, I think you've convinced me. That's like Meb's Boston. Rub, rub. You know, it, it, let's be honest. If, if, if the if the Africans in, in Boston that year hadn't just let Meb get a lead, one of the dumbest tactical decisions in the history of the world, he doesn't win that race. It's not. It's not even that. It's if the Africans who were entered actually showed up and ran like they would like their credentials. I mean, remember. Dennis Comedo and Lulisa DeCiso were both in that field, and I think they both DNF'd. I mean, neither of them did anything of substance. You would think if they were if they were right on that day, they would they would have smoked Meb. All right, Robert, you posed a question in the intro. You asked us what Jesse Lingard ran for a 5K. And first of all, let's just let people who don't know who Jesse Lingard is. He's a English Premier League footballer for Manchester United. Spent some time on loan early in his career at Brighton and Hove Albion, the greatest football team in the world. So uh, clearly he learned everything he, he knew from his ta- time on the South Coast. Good news first, before Robert gets there, people. The soccer teams in Germany are starting to practice again. So we could have some sports. Somebody needs to pave the way. Well, here's the thing about sports. like the, I hear about the Premier League trying to come up with all these solutions to get games played and the the NFL and college football these entities, college football, the NFL, and the Premier League, there is the most money at stake in these things. They are going to figure out the way to get it done, if there is a way to get it done safely, and even if there's not a way to get it done safely. Because this money is just such a big motivation for those things that they're going to be figuring out a way to do it. But anyway, Jesse Lingard, he runs a 5K. Is this like I don't even really have any context for this. 5K, but Robert, can you provide some to me? What was he doing? It's not really clear. That's what people are debating. I'll, I'll give you the thread title. The thread title is I, I was so much for soccer pros all being fast distance runners. And he just posted on Instagram his 5K and 10K times. I'm not sure if this was a race or just his normal training run. Oh, I'll say like 1930 then. And 10K, John? 40 minutes. Hmm. Not bad, not bad. I won't make Walden guess. 1829 for 5K and 3926 for 10K. I'm impressed with that. This guy's going sub six for 5K. I'm assuming this isn't a race. He's just banging out kind of like, let's get a good workout in. That's pretty good. And 10K, he's banging 3926. What is that, about 620 pace? Yeah, I don't think it's anything to be ashamed of. I mean, if he was racing this all out, I mean, maybe you might be able to. He's a professional soccer player. I don't know. I don't really care what he runs for a 5K. Like, it's a decently fit thing. He's a hell of a soccer player, so it doesn't really make a difference to me what his 5K is. But I'm kind of interested to know it now. All right, we'll link to that thread in the show notes, Robert. But in that thread, it also talks about Celtic, a team in Scotland, right? Yes. About to say Ireland, piss off a bunch of people. But, you know. Anyway, so there they're seeing a guy, they run 5Ks as well, and that it's, just, it's their second training of the day, and that two guys ran low 17s and one guy broke 17. Moritz Bauer allegedly went sub-17 in a 5K. So that's not bad. 
This is what we've come to during quarantine, debating Scottish soccer teams, players, 5Ks. That's all okay, guys. we have to erase to analyze. But have you seen this? Two other things, my favorite threads. Weld may have some deleted threads. New record from New York City, LA, in a car. Guess the time before clicking. So I looked this up. I actually guessed it's about 2,775 miles from New York to LA, depending on how you drive it. If you're in kilometers, that's 4,465 kilometers. Guess how fast. Why don't we just think of this in miles per hour? Guess how many miles per hour they're able to average driving across the country during the middle of the COVID. Yeah, I already saw this thread, so Weldon, go ahead. We already saw it too. Somebody claimed 120, but that's not what it averages out to. It's like 106 miles an hour, right? When you do the math yourself. Wow. I apologize. I stand corrected. I'll, I'll move it down. So, sorry. Can you repeat that, Robert? Wow. I apologize for staying corrected. I was promoting fake news from the message board. So when I did this, I thought, well, you could average 80 miles an hour, which was probably a way under underestimation. I'm driving from Dallas to Atlanta and average like 60, over 60 miles an hour with stops. So these guys had like... Just over 60 miles an hour? That's not very... From Dallas to Atlanta? Am I supposed to be impressed by that? With stops, 65 hours, driving all day, like maybe over 60. How long is a drive of a drive that is that? It's like a 12-hour drive. You have to stop and get food and stuff. I mean, I didn't pack lunches or anything. I went to McDonald's and got some – so you got average like 75 miles an hour. Anyways. It's seven, all right, now it's 75. You've added another 15 miles an hour. It's no, you're driving 75, then you stop. But these people obviously have extra yeah, – Doesn't everyone drive 75 on the highway, Robert? Okay, John, just anyways. I figured they can brag about this. I'm not impressed. My dumb my my dumb estimation was I figured they can average 80 miles an hour. And then this guy says they average 122 miles an hour. But I just did the math. I think it's only an average of 104. So not as impressive as I thought. Anyways, another thought that I liked is Lance is a bigger ass than we thought. Wait, so our, on. before we go to that. Am I supposed to, I'm, I'm like, how do you guys feel about someone averaging like 106 miles an hour across the country? Because I, I don't oh. want to be impressed or endangering everyone. They should be arrested. I agree. They should not be putting their names on there. I think they should be arrested. But the, the crazy thing is people want them arrested for not driving 106 miles an hour across the country and endangering people's lives, but for violating quarantine. I mean... The driving is way more dangerous than like being in a car and breaking whatever state rules they broke for that. Like, it's unbelievable. No, but the I feel like we already talked about this. I feel like we already talked about this on the podcast. Maybe because I spent a whole evening read abouting, reading about it. I'm like, how do they not get tickets? How do they not kill somebody? So a couple of things. One, a lot of them have they now have spotters. These guys are in a car network, so cars will go ahead and spot. Other guys supposedly have had helicopters go above or planes fly over and check for cops. And then it's new technology you never thought about. The, they just use Waze. And the Waze says there's a cop here and such and such. But I also think if someone was going that fast, somebody might call the cop and say, hey, I just call, saw a car going 120, be 20 miles down the road and get them. But clearly didn't happen. Yeah, and if you do get pulled over, is that game over? Does the cop see the extra fuel tanks and say, you boys are coming down to the station tonight? So anyway, but do they do they open up the trunk when they're pulling you over for speeding? I feel like that doesn't probably doesn't happen. I've never been actually. I've only been pulled. I've been pulled over for speeding once in New Hampshire. Uh, I don't know. Well, I'm, the trunk. I'm pretty upset about these people that that are aren't following the social quarantine. So if you're under directions to be socially quarantined, wear a mask. Don't be an idiot. So 
Wait, wearing a mask, it's not required in every place, Robert. Although I just saw in New York, it is. I'm not in New York. I thought, I thought they said everywhere. Nationwide, they're recommending everyone wear a mask. Recommending. That's very different. So, like, am I not allowed to go walk without a mask on? I mean, like... No, you can walk. Just don't go to the grocery store, be around other people without a mask. Okay, moving on. I love this thread. Lance is a bigger ass than we thought. It was basically about how he... Tried the year Miguel Indoran, his teammate won. He wanted Miguel to bow down to him and, and let him win the race instead. But the post that struck my attention was came from message board poster Hard as Nails. What do you guys think of this comparison? Alberto Salazar is basically Lance Armstrong. They were both doped up and complete jerks a lot of the time, but they by but by God, they were fighters. The will to win at all cost is a double edged sword. I mean, I guess, yeah, they both really wanted to win and went to, you know, I, some would argue Salazar didn't go to any means necessary. He he did stuff that he thought was legal, whereas Lance knew that what he was doing was illegal. But I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a fairly apt comparison, I would say. Also, we got our Alberto mention of the weekend. I feel like we've neglected that during quarantine. Have we been talking about Alberto every week on this podcast? And we haven't had Rojo's shoe rant for months. I mean, this it's been glorious. Weeks. Let's let's say weeks. Rojo definitely had a shoe rant like after the trials, and that was that was not <laughs> that long ago. I mean, the biggest winners of of the quarantine shutdown are the other shoe companies. They get to catch up with the shoes. I hopefully shoes. This is deemed essential work, so they can work full steam ahead on this. Get these shoes out. You know, we got to have our priorities. Uh, yeah. you know. No, no, I'm I'm going to an essential business. We're trying to close the gap on the Nike Vaporfly. Oh, yes, yes. Go right along, sir. I, I got distracted. I somehow saw on Twitter now that they're having protests now against the distancing, Robert, in Michigan, because the governor went overboard. So what you need to do, it needs Lansing, Michigan. looks like thousands or hundreds of cars are out protesting. You need reasonable measures in place. So like what goes for upstate Michigan is not what should be the same for New York City etc. Outdoor exercise probably should be encouraged in a responsible way. I feel like this is a fascinating legal exercise. Americans have the right to assembly, you know, the right to protest. That's a fundamental American right. And yet, if you assemble in too great numbers to protest something, you're violating one of these social distancing ordinances. What, what takes priority here? I would, I would protest in my car. You boycott, you, you go around the governor's mansion and block him in so he can't get any food or anything. John, this looks pr- pretty, right? I and mean, there are limits to the First Amendment, right? You can't yell fire in a Exactly, pe- right, pe- right. But having said that, it looks like this photo I just saw on Twitter, most of the protesters in cars, there's just thousands of cars out, or probably hundreds. It's, and there's one guy on top, top of his car with a, well, a Trump flag. But... People are allowed to fly Trump flags. Well, most people seem to be in their cars. I know, but of course, they, you know, <laughs> I didn't want to make it political, you know, but I feel like people, it's going to be really interesting, the back half of this thing about how the states unwind these restrictions if certain states do certain things, because at some point with diseases, yeah, you kind of all are in it together to some extent with spread and that sort of stuff. But there's, there's still so much unknown about all of this. So I think we're going to have... This is a better problem to be worrying about the problems we were having two weeks ago, so... I mean, can you imagine if there's, like, one state that's just way out in front of all the others? Like, North Dakota decides we're abolishing all social distancing immediately, and then all sports are just headquartered in North Dakota for, like, the next three months. But the thing that makes no sense to me is, Bolton's like, this is a better problem we were having two weeks ago. It's weird. Everyone's acting like this thing's over. We're right now at peak... Who's 
acting like it's over, Robert. No, a lot of people are. They're like, oh, it's, they can mm. see the other side of it. When reality, like right now, every day we're like near peak deaths. I mean, yes, it's probably slight, slightly down below the peak deaths, but like the next last week and this week are going to just be massive fatalities, still massive new infections. Maybe they're not going up, which is good, but we, I, I think we're going to be through this at least the end of May. But Robert, deaths lag everything, as you know, like 18 days, 14 days. So you can see the pattern of where this is going. Now, people need to come back s- smart, obviously. But like I just saw here also on Twitter, Cuomo's sending out – he's sending ventilators to other states. So New York is way past its peak. So hopefully this is good news. Yeah, and we're spending $500 million or is it $5 billion on, on new ventilators from GM. I knew we were never going to need those. I said I was going to run for mayor of Baltimore. Maybe I should just run like, for you president. Don't know that. You don't know that. You didn't know it then, and you don't know now that we I won't. believed it to be true. By the time you get these things done in three or four months, it's going to be too late anyways. I guess you can use them for another pandemic. Robert, you're, speaking, Maybe, you're talking out of your ass here right now, Robert. When we have these extra ventilators in a few months, the GM produces, I pray to God that we send them to India, Ethiopia, Africa, wherever they need them, instead of just hoarding them ourselves. So- Robert's good at this. Though. He plays both sides. You know, he's just saying, like, we need a distance longer. <laughs> then he real quickly says, I knew we didn't need the ventilators. Like, it's very hard to do what he does. Like, <laughs> a lot of people get pinned down, you know, on one side or the other. I started following this guy on Twitter. Don't admit it. Don't admit it. I'm not going to say the name. It's the former New York Times. Wait, was it New York Times? What was the guy? I know exactly what gonna- talking about because my friends saw me. They're like, look at this guy. He says that things are fine. We need to boost the economy back. And he's totally controversial. <laughs> yes, I, I, I somehow saw this guy on Twitter and then he's like, hey, I'm on Fox News. I was like, oh. And then, then about a week later, there was another clip saying Sean Hannity's acting like this guy was too conservative. But then I saw a clip today, and they showed tweets from – this is sort of interesting, John, how people can change their minds. A month ago, he was very alarmist. So to my, in my mind, this guy – I think the ability to make you wrong and shift, shift your opinions is better. He may still be wrong now, but like we need to keep critically thinking about this. So there's so much we don't know. It's easier to be the contrarian because then you get noticed. So you can be on the other side of, of, of things just to get publicized and get publicity. All right, guys, before we get to the Madeline Manning interview, let me teach you a little bit about Olympic history that I learned last week. I said on the podcast a few weeks ago that the 1900 and 1904 Olympics were, according to Olympic, according to Wikipedia, quote-unquote sideshows. They were like a low point in the Olympic movement. Well, this week there was a cool article on um, the 1904 Olympic marathon 1908. Wait, oh yeah, it was 1904. Sorry, you're right. On avclub.com, and I don't know what website that is, but fascinating article. So it's some sort of the Deadspin, it's related to Gizmodo, Deadspin, or whatever. It was the worst race ever run. But anyways, this is when a guy caught into a car, crosses the finish line first, then gets disqualified, banned from the sport. What I didn't know was two things. One, he came. He was banned from the sport from life, according to one source, a year and another source. Neither of those held because he won the Boston Marathon the very next year. So the Olympics from the summer was less than one year banned. This guy wins the Boston Marathon. And two, this is more interesting because it's always arbitrary to me. Like we give out three medals in the Olympics, but they recognize four teams at NCAAs in cross country. And 
I'm like, what if we had six medals? Would people be pumping their fists when they got six? Like three seems kind of arbitrary. Where does three come from? And I found out in the 1904 Olympics, and I think even maybe all the first three Olympics, there was only two medals. You got a silver medal for first and a bronze medal for second. I had no idea about that. So that means Ajay Wilson did not win a medal last year at Worlds. Therefore, Madeline Manning should have beaten her. The, the old Olympics were crazy, man. Do you realize how long these things lasted? All right. The 1900 Summer Olympics in Paris, they opened on May 14th, 1900. When do you think they closed? August 14th. Not even close. It can't be longer. I'm going to go June 14th. October 28th. <laughs> the Olympics lasted five months. I mean, I don't know. They just Isn't the whole point? Everyone comes together at the same time in the same place, and they're just doing it for months on end? That's like a that's a, almost a baseball season. This is what I don't understand. When it, when first of all, John, when it takes five months to get there, you might as well stay for a while. Think about how hard it is to get to St. Louis in 1904. If you're yeah, why did St. Louis ever get the Olympics? Like it's just in the middle of the USA. It was like all American. I think the World's Fair was that year. I think the World's Fair was that year, but it was mainly almost an all American team. Nobody else showed up. An all American Olympics. What I don't understand is I never understood this. There was no ATMs and stuff. So like, how do you get cash? Like, do you carry a huge chunk of gold with you, or like? <laughs> No, that's honestly, it's legit. I don't think that's how they did it, but it is a legitimate question. Like you just, you come over to the, to America for like three months or something. Do you, do you have enough? You just bring all your money from back home and just trade it in for dollars or. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like even before ATMs, you had like, you, people would bring, what were those things called? Travelers checks and shit. You probably could call a bank if you had to, but there there weren't phones back then, right? Like, or was were there long distance phones? I Telegrams and shit. Only the very very rich people do. But that. most people are like walking around with like a couple hundred bucks. That was probably like a few grand in cash. Well, if you get robbed, was that it? Like you just started begging on the street because like no bank was going to front you any money. I think these people had to find jobs. Well, then you know, do whatever you can. If you didn't have any money, you just say, "Hey, I'll I'll be a day laborer for a few well, days." Well, that's what I was thinking also with the Olympics back then. There was no TV, no radio. So the only revenue stream was probably to like charge for tickets. And you had to, so you had, nobody could travel really to your town to watch. You had the same people. So you had to space it out so they could afford afford the tickets. You know, like they can buy a ticket this month and then one ticket next month. That sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, I think I just think it would be funny. I assume all the track, track competition was held like in close proximity on the calendar but can you imagine like the first they're right they have the first round of the olympic country meters on may 15th and then they're like all right we'll have the second round on july 7th and robert seems like he's robert is just walking away from the microphone in the middle of the podcast well we're not in the, i guess we are in the middle because we got the manning podcast coming up robert has just pulled the irish goodbye he said nothing he just packed up his stuff and left and waved robert has left the podcast and I was thinking about that, John, the old Olympics. Like, we're, 1904 just seems so long ago, all that other stuff. I mean, Madeline Manning's Olympics was 52 years ago. If you do 52 years before her, you're like 1916. I mean, you're not that far back. And, and we're still debating whether if you put her now in today's era, she'd be competitive. So it's pretty amazing. What is your point? That the 1904 Olympics were a long time ago? Because I feel like that's pretty self-evident. <laughs> No, but the point is being like 50 years before Manning, you're not arguing that some 1904 person could beat Madeline Manning. 
But we're debating whether Madeline Manning could... Team 68 might have argued that, though. They might have said, look at all the advantages these modern athletes have. Like, you know, they... Because one of the things, 1904, they probably want... African-Americans were probably not competing in these... In the Olympics or the Olympic trials. Like, U.S. is, you know... That's true. I mean, you, back in the day, people like Jim Thorpe. And, you, you know, if you put him in today's era, maybe he'd be competitive. This is, this is what happens. Every generation would say, like... So the old people in 1968 would be like, these people couldn't hold a candle to Jim Thorpe or James Lightbody. And now you got people now saying Ryan's better than Sensuitz, which, again, he might be. Uh, but And then we'll be, well, then when I'm 50 years from now, I'll be like, oh, it's Alan Webb, Matthew Sensuitz, these guys, if they had modern this modern technology, they'd be right up there with the best of them, you know? It's just, this is a natural cycle of things. So the NLP, all the NLP people won't age well, John, because they had all the advanced gimmicks. There it is, Alberto. I said it. Come on the podcast, Alberto, please, to refute the charge of gimmicks. But I think that's enough for today, John. We got Madeline Manning. Up. I don't know how we talk for so long, Weldon. We say, oh, we're only going to do 30 minutes. We've, done, we've gone over an hour, and now we've got an hour-long Madeline Manning interview going. But you guys should listen to the end. It's a really insightful interview. Madeline was a great guest. Lots of great stories. Yeah, Robert wanted it as two podcasts, but that's harder to produce, so we're just doing it as one. But you can listen in two part podcasts. Today is this is the end of today's podcast. Tomorrow, listen to Madeline Manning. Yeah, you have an entire week until we give you another podcast. So I know you guys can make it through. And if you're still listening at this point, rate and review five stars on iTunes or any wherever you lead your reviews on for podcasts. Thank you. If you need supplements, you want to perform well, you want to stay healthy, feed.com slash flesh one to save 15% off. Madeline Manning. She goes, she's got connections to Jesse Owens, Wilma Rudolph, and... Jay Wilson. She spans the game. She spans it all. Here she is. All right, everyone. We have the pleasure of being joined by the only American 800-meter Olympic female champion, Madeline Manning. She won the gold in 1968. And we were talking on last week's podcast. It's amazing. Her, people don't know more about her. 1968 Olympic gold medalist, four-time Olympic trials champion in 800 meters, the first American woman to go sub two in the 800. She held the 800 American record for 15 years. I think she was a three-time world record holder at 800. And then she's been to every Olympics since, except for the 1980 boycott. She's been an Olympic chaplain. I mean, she's done it all. She's seen it all. The world has changed so much. I mean, when she started running, the longest event at the Olympics was 1,500 meters for women. So, Madeline, you're an amazing athlete, an amazing person. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's my privilege to be here. And I'm just trying to think where to start because in researching your career... Let me interrupt. I think I know where to start. I mean, Madeline, how can a woman with so much, so many accomplishments... I mean, you've done so much, and I must confess, I've been running this website that's focused on running, and I'm not sure if I even knew who you were a month ago. Do you feel like, I don't know, how is that possible? Do you feel like you haven't gotten the publicity and the attention that you should? I mean, everybody it seems like on our website knows who Billy Mills is. He won gold in 64. Yes. Jim Ryan, some of these people, Frank Shorter, etc. But, but but you haven't maybe you're not on the public consciousness as much. How can that be? And why is that? Is it sexism, racism? How, how do you explain it? <laughs> um, it's interesting that you were naming all of my teammates. When Billy Mills ran, I was just a little girl in high school. 
and uh, I happened to see one of his uh, runs overseas. I was on that team, probably my first team that I was on, that he was running his last uh, 5,000-meter run. So I had an opportunity to see and meet him. And, uh, of course, Jim Ryan was on my my team. Frank Shorter was on my team. Um, you know, when you're on so many teams, <laughs> after a while, you you have you you forget who has been on what team. But um, you know what's interesting? That's a good question because I think that I've been the type of person that I don't look back or I don't look at um, the fact that you know I'm not getting the recognition. Um, I, I'm I'm t- so busy focusing on what's present and going forward that I don't take time to be looking behind me. Actually, in our 50th anniversary in 2018 for the 68 Olympic team, that's really when I found out who I was. Um, You know, as an athlete, uh, the accomplishments. I went to a reunion in Colorado Springs and they had the whole team there, all the different sports. And uh, I had the opportunity to sing the national anthem and also to um, share a little whatever. But they, they were introducing me and I was sitting down and thinking, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and I talked to my husband, I said, did I, is that right? Is he right? When it's been 50 years and no one has, no one else has won a gold medal. And I I thought about, I was like, well, I knew that, but you know how you know it, but you don't think about it. So it it doesn't, it doesn't put any pressure on you. Um, I've written a book, The Hope of Glory, and uh, it is my autobiography. And uh, it's in, in the schools all across the country. It's in a lot of libraries. Um, it's, it's just been amazing because I don't look back and feel like, well, I didn't get my due. You know, uh, I have other people saying that about me. In fact, Weldon just said something that very seldom anybody says, and that is, uh, she's the first woman to break two minutes in America. And he's right. But nobody knows that. And so I don't get uptight about it or offended about it. I just know that in my time, I did what I was supposed to do. And I finished strong. And I came out of it. And now I'm giving back. It's an amazing career. Let's sort of get started with it. I mean, there's you have connections to Jesse Owens. Wilma yes. Rudolph, and then now the connections now, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, I was reading a great sort of biography on you, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but it it claimed you got your start in running with the physical fitness test in high school. Right. Is that true? You, were just, you weren't an athlete growing up. I mean, I heard you almost died at the age of three from meningitis. Yes. They said you weren't going to be able, you know, you might be mentally challenged. You may not be able to walk. And then that wasn't obviously the case. But you weren't an athlete and you just discovered, I mean, there weren't, I don't think people understand, there weren't really many opportunities for women to compete back then, right? But you running discovered you in this fitness test. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, aside from that, I was very shy. I was very, you know, 
I was the type of kid, I liked people, but I didn't know how to meet people, you know. And uh, so had it not been for that test, the physical fitness test that uh, President Kennedy brought forth for our students in America, I probably would not have heard of me because I wouldn't have gone out for anything. Um, the fact that I had to do this and I actually was enjoying it and ended up breaking some of the top school records. And, and uh, <laughs> this one girl came in one day and beat all of my scores. And although I was quiet, I had a little tiger in my tank. And so I asked my gym teacher if I could take the test again. And she said, yeah, you can take it many times you want. And I said, okay. And I took the test every day for the next two weeks straight. And she said, finally, uh, it's over. <laughs> you know, you can't take it anymore. But when they compilated my scores, they found out that not only had I broken school records and was the top uh, physical fit girl in the school, but that I was one of the top physical fit girls in the nation and that I had broken some different uh, records in that category. Um, so that's when they came to me and said, you need to go, go out for some sports. I said, okay, what you got? And they said, well, we have uh, volleyball, basketball, and track. And I said, okay. And I went out for all three. And within that year, we became state champions in volleyball, basketball, and track. And I do believe that I had a little something to do with that. But all of a sudden, I found something I really did well and something I loved and would put a lot of time into. And I was actually discovered by a um, Hungarian coach who was watching me run one day and asked my mom if he could train me. And that's how that whole thing got started with me getting really serious about running. And so, yeah, th that coach, what was his name again? Alex Ferenczi. I couldn't say Ferenczi at the time, so I always call him Coach Alex. <laughs> he smart. became like a father figure to me, uh, very loving, uh, but really knew what he was doing with uh, the girls he was working with. And initially you were more of a sprinter, right? 100, 200, and then up to the 400? Well, actually I was like 200, long jump, triple jump, um, and the four by one. You know, that's what I did. But my coach, who was a gym, my gym coach at that time, came up and said, you know, we need somebody to run the 440-yard dash because we're close to winning the state championship, but we're in rival with another school. And so she said, would you do that? And I told her no, because <laughs> I, I thought I like to have died running the 200. Now you're trying to kill me twice. So I reneged on it, but she said, well, just go out there and jog, just, just jog around. At least we'll get one point. So I figured for, for the sake of the team, okay, I'll do that. And I uh, end up uh, winning and breaking the record, which I didn't even know if that was good or not, because you do something in my mother's house and break something, that's not good. So when they said, you broke the record, I'm like, is that good? <laughs> but that he was watching me and my mother was there and he talked with her and we got together and started working out 
training together. He was the coach for the city team. So he was taking the top runners from different schools and combining them together to uh, prepare to run in the girls' nationals, which I hadn't even heard about. I didn't know anything about that. Yeah, and then I'm not sure when you ran your first 800, but the story I heard, I mean, some of this stuff sounds too good to be true, that you went to a meet in Canada. Exactly. And they replaced the 400 with an 800. It was an indoor meet, and you broke the world record. That can't be true. I was in the bathroom when they switched it. So I didn't know that they switched. So when I come come out and they're, they're saying, you know, well, it's going to be five and a half laps around. I'm looking, thinking, that's a little long. And so I waited and went over to the official and I said, did you say we're running five and a half laps? And he said, yes. I said, well, isn't that a little long for 440? And he said, no, no, this is the 800 meters. The girls want to run it. I said, who? Who said, no, I, I came here to run the 440. <laughs> so finally, he said, do you want to run it or not? And I said, well, let me call my coach. I called my coach and he said, he, he did one of these psych things on me. He said, just go out there and, and uh, use it as a training. Don't worry about it. Just use it as a training. Whoever goes out in front, just follow them. So I go out and I think, okay, the pressure's off now because I don't have to perform. You know, this is this is tra training. So I go out there and uh, long story made short, I ended up beating everybody and I was excited about it. And it was in the infield when this guy came over and said, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Madeline Manning from Cleveland, Ohio. And he said, um, you, this is so what do you normally run? And I said, well, I normally run the 440. But the, I went to the bathroom, and while I was in the bathroom, they changed the thing, and everybody wanted to run the 880. So I said, I, I called my coach, and he told me to use it as a trainer. And the guy's looking at me like crazy, <laughs> thinking, how in the world? And he said, you mean to tell me you've never run 800 meter before? I said, no, and I don't really want to run it now, but it's, it's, it's okay. It's, you know, I did well. <laughs> By that time, you hear the, the announcer saying, ladies and gentlemen, the winner of the 800 meter run for the women's division is Madeline Manning, a high school girl from Cleveland, Ohio, who has just broken the world record. And I, I was on the floor and I sprung up on top of that guy's head and I was just out of control. I was like, did you know, he said, you didn't know that. And I said, no, you know? So when I get back home, my coach asked me, you know, well, what do you think about the 800 now? I said, nothing. And he said, well, they're not going to ask you to come run a 400 if, <laughs> since you've run a world record. And I'm like, well, you tell them now I'm not coming unless they let me run the 400. And he just smiled because then he knew that he had me doing both of them. And that's how I ended up running the eight and the four. Because most places I would go, uh, they would have me to run the eight, but then they, unless they allowed me to run the 400, I wouldn't run the eight. So now there you go. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. You know how fast you ran that first 800? 210 two. Wow. Indoors. Yeah. But it's just kind of crazy also just shows how things were different now, back then and women's sport was in its infancy. Cause I mean, now if somebody broke a record, it, it would, 
be big news and there'd be all this pressure to keep running it and oh just yeah a different different era so then you get recruited by um ed temple at tennessee state i mean he's like the legend in olympic women's coaching coached wilma rudolph and i don't know how many i mean i think in 1968 i saw there was six members of your team of your college team in the Olympics. I mean, it, yes. it was crazy. Yes. There were only nine of us on the team. And, um, the other two, uh, were from other countries that represented their country. So it was, that made it eight. And our ninth girl actually made the team, but because, um, they want the officials wanted her, our officials wanted her to switch out, and um, use a girl who had already made the team from Chicago in one of the sprints, they left her home. See, today they wouldn't leave her home because she actually came in fifth and they were supposed to take six deep and um, she would at least get a chance to go. But um, yeah, our whole team, it was, in fact, Mr. Temple and, and Mr. Alex, as I would call them, um, were very close friends and both of them were Olympic coaches. They ended up being Olympic coaches. And um, I was, you know, amazed when I first came to Tennessee State University because to, to be there sitting among, everybody was a national champion. You know, there were nine of us and every last one of us was a national champion. So he let us know that, okay, where you're starting is where most people want to want to be. This is where they want to come. So um, we got to start at a different place. And he said, right now you're at zero. <laughs> Let us know that you will not be a Tiger Bell unless you meet my standards. So it was pretty tough, but it was a great, great camaraderie among us as a team. And so when, when you went to college, was that in 1967? 66, I graduated. Yeah. And so you go to uh, college that next fall. Are you immediately sort of thinking like, Hey, I'm going to make the Olympic team or at that point you're, it's, you're too young. You're not even thinking about that. Kind of what were the thoughts? I wasn't thinking about that until I got around the Olympians. Um, Wyoming Atias was on that team at the time. She was a senior. And, um, and then um, Edith McGuire, uh, had graduated, but she would come back and she would train with us at, at times. But then, you know, and Wilma Rudolph would come by and, and when you're around those type of people and they're, they're talking Olympics, then, then you start thinking Olympics because before on your own out there, you know, it almost seems like an impossibility, but when you're around people that have been there, done that and are on their way back, then all of a sudden you realize, I, you know what, I can, I can make the team. And not only that, we were the best in the country. So we did not think we weren't going to make it. This is like, who, who else in, in the United States is going to beat us? But there was no NCAA championships back then. So what is the team focused on? Like what, what meets are national? You we, we focused on nationals. We, you know, I, it's funny because when I go back to Tennessee State University, the, the athletes there talk about their conference. And, uh, and I'm thinking, conference? <laughs> well, 
what's what's the what about nationals? In fact, I remember talking to a bunch of them and and say and saying, you know, well, any of you have you decided to try to make the nationals? And we were like, they were like, what? The nationals? We're trying to just make our conference and win our conference. I said, you're thinking too small. You know, if you're going to wear the Tiger Bell shirt, you better think higher than that. And I heard that next year, 1967, Wilma Rudolph, I heard originally, I don't know if this is all true too, her nickname was Skeeter. And they right. were they're like, oh, there's Skeeter. And you're like, who's Skeeter? And then right. you just thought she was some woman who kind of come came around every once in a while. And then you figured out who she was. Oh, man. Said to you, like, you can do some big things in this sport. Is that an accurate story? That is very accurate. I would see her come on the uh, campus. One of the things, she was a beautiful, very strikingly beautiful. And she would get your attention just by her walking by. But then she had such a beautiful smile and a warm spirit about her. Uh, but I could never figure out who she was. And everybody was like, that's Skeeter. So in 67, she came to the Pan Am Games and she was an ambassador um for women's sports there. So she came over to our dormitory. We were walking and uh, one of the long jumpers told her, told me, um, that's, I said, who is that lady? I see her around the school. She said, oh, that's Skeeter. It's like, who is Skeeter? She said, that's Wilma Rudolph. I said, you're kidding. That's Wilma Rudolph. I used to hear about her when I was 12. And so she goes up and I told her, please, whatever you do, don't tell her I didn't know who she was. <laughs> and of course, Martha, the jester on the team, goes right up to her and says, Skeeter, Madeline didn't know who you were. I was like, oh, gosh, I could have died. I was so embarrassed. And she came over and put her arm around me and she just said, you know what? My time has passed. It's your time now. You go out there do what you're supposed to do and bring back that gold. I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> she said, don't be saying yes, ma'am to me. I ain't that old. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but we became very, very close friends after that. And uh, she did that that year. And then in 68, I, had, I, I knew Jesse Owens because he was from my hometown, Cleveland, Ohio. But he came in to speak to the whole Olympics uh, Olympic team in Mexico. And as we were walking out, somebody introduced him to me and he said, I know well who she is. And I thought he was just being nice. But then he started saying, I remember when you ran the, um, the uh, 55 second world record as a girl in high school. And I was <laughs> like, he really does know me. But he did the same thing. He just said, listen, you're ready. This is your time. Go out there and get that gold medal. And I was like, yes, sir. So I obliged both of them. <laughs> yeah. And going into t Tokyo, I heard you hadn't lost in two years in an 800. And you went, I mean, you destroyed the competition. Olympic final, you ran two flat point nine. Mexico City. Yeah, you said, you said Tokyo. Oh, Tokyo. Sorry. I'm getting all my Olympic years mixed up. Mexico City, altitude. And, I mean, you won by over a second and a half. We're, like, 
when you look back at that race, you know, it's what, 52 years ago now. Are you amazed by how much you won by? Does it seem, can you still like think about like what you were feeling at that time? I mean, does it still seem real? Like, I don't know, just sort of give us your thoughts about that race in Mexico. It's funny because I have, I have the um, DVD of my race and the, the wonderful thing as a speaker, you know, it's a part of my introduction. They'll show it and people are like, they're right there at the time experiencing. And I get so excited, not so much from watching me do what I do, because I know what I've done, but watching them watch me do what I do and and ex- get excited about it and start screaming and hollering for me to come on, you can do it, you know? And I'm thinking, wow. So this was what it was like to be in the stadium watching me perform. Um, it's just a neat, a neat type of thing. It, it, it's exhilarating to watch other people watch me and then, yeah, you know, to have been that far ahead of everybody. Um, I knew that I could win. I knew that I, I had the best time in the heat. I had the best time in the semis and I came in with the best time. Now, this is one area that there was a lot of prejudice there, Robert, because the like Sports Illustrated had said who all was going to uh, were people to to be looked at in the women's 800, and they never acknowledged that I had been unbeaten for the last two years in the world. They never acknowledged that. I think they had a line in there at the end of the uh, write-up that said, and watch watch out for Madeline Manning from the United States. And that was all. Even the commentary, um, the, they went down the lanes uh, of the finalists and introduced them and where they were from and said a little something about them. And, and uh, when it got to me, who I happened to be in lane eight, they said, and rounding out the field in lane eight, Madeline Manning from the United States, nothing else. So what it was that I found out later on was the myth was that women of color could not run long distance. And so with me winning it, with such a, a unique time, a world record, a, a Olympic record, uh, and with the space between me and my competitors, it awakened something in the world. And that's when uh, people of color began to run long distance. I met um, a young um, coach from um, Nigeria uh, some many years later. And he was just saying, you know, uh, I know who she is. She's the one that is the reason for our girls running. Uh, because before her, we didn't think they could run because we thought they had fast twitch muscles and that's all they could do. But um, she proved us wrong. And that's why women of color all over the world are running today. That was a shocker. You definitely proved everybody wrong. And I mean, now in the United States, 
Ajay Wilson, Alyssa yeah. Montano before that. It's Raven Rogers. Yeah. Raven Rogers. I mean, the top 800 women are, are all African-American. So, yep. You look at that field wor- worldwide and, you know, you see the Ethiopians, the Kenyans. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of women of color who, who have stepped up and, and uh, are for running the uh, middle distance and distance runs. And the, you know, and also the, in 1968, I mean, I can't believe it's only five years before I was born because it seems like a different world, but like, I mean, Martin Luther King was killed that year. You yeah. had Tommy Smith and John Carlos with the protests at the Olympics. Right. So you proved everybody wrong. You come back home to America. Like how were you received? Um, accepted, but not, recognized. In other words, they, they did not, uh, not accept me, but there was no recognition for any of the women, no matter what color they were, uh, on the Olympic team there, you know, it was interesting because, uh, Wyoming Atias had won the first time ever a male or a female had ever did back-to-back 100-meter races and won it at the Olympic Games. Um, And she just, it was, she was not recognized. I think that probably if we had been more vocal that we would have demanded attention, but because we were not, and... um, did not push ourselves out there to be recognized the way maybe some guys would have. Um, we, we just weren't recognized. We weren't turned down, but at the same time, you know, I look at, I look at what's happening now and what's happening now. You have a lot of um, uh, athletes who can use their platform to become millionaires we all would have been multimillionaires if we ran today. I was going to ask this, um, Madeline, is like, what do you do to support yourself during that time? Because a lot of athletes in that era would do one, maybe two Olympics, and then they would quit and work a real job. And you make four teams. How are you supporting yourself? What are you doing? Well, some of that I was in school. So I was scholarshiped. But once I got out... I had to work a job like everybody else and, and train. So it was very hard, you know, like now today your training is your job. And you know, if you're up there high enough in the elite category, uh, you will be supplemented, um, by, you know, corporations and, and people who want to help you, but that was not available for us at all. I mean, it's kind of crazy because you're right. If if you won an Olympic gold medal now, you'd be a millionaire. And you just went back to school and they said, thank you very much, it sounds like. I mean, it's kind of crazy. So, so I mean, I, I was when I was reading the stats here, it says that you were, you know, number one in the world in 67, 68, 69, but number one in the U.S. in 67, 68, 69, 72, 75, 76, 80, and 81. And it says that some of those years, I guess, of those 14 years, you took off six of the years. Is that just to raise your son and do your job? Like, is that true? Some years you didn't run at all? Yeah, I thought I was finished. 
<laughs> you know, it, you go through um, a time where, you know, you train and you go to the Olympic trials, you make the Olympic trials, you get on a team, and then you, you go there and you compete. And after that, it's, you know, you want to, you really want to break. So a couple of those times, I thought I was finished. I really thought, you know, track and field's over, and so I'll do something else. But the Lord called me out of my retirement. That's what ended up, because I, and every time he would call me out, I would think, do I still have it? You know, can I, can I, I know he wasn't saying just run around a block, you know, <laughs> for exercise. I knew he was talking about something a lot greater than that. So it was scary. Um, it stretched my faith. And I was hoping that I still have it. I was like, okay, just on your word, I'll go and I'll try again. And he was right. I had more to give each time. So let's talk about the the other Olympics. I mean, you had the great success, I guess, what, at age 20? Is that right? When you won the Olympic yeah. gold? And then 72 and 76, you, you didn't make the final in either ones. And 76, I mean, you seem to be in the form of your life because you end up running an American record 157.99 a few weeks after the Olympics. So to tell us what – in both Olympics, you didn't make the finals there. What happened with that? And – how disappointing was it not to be able to, to have that glory once again? 72 was hell year. H-E-L-L. It was hell. Uh, I had gone through a, a really bad divorce and I was really down. And I was actually, instead of running to glorify God, I was running to show you can't keep a good woman down. I was angry. I was hurt. I was a single mother. And um, I ended up actually um, making the uh, four by 400 team as well as the 800. You know, I was top in the 800 and I was able, I was second in the 400. So they put me on the relay. Uh, and that's how I ended up with a silver medal in the four by 400. And it was crazy because I was, I thought for sure that this was not, going to happen for me, but it did. But that was the year of the Black September coming in. And uh, I, I don't know if most people realize this, but the United States dormitory for track and field, the women were directly across from the Israeli dormitory. So we went out on the porch and we were watching the whole thing until they called us to, to come out of the building. And so in leaving, it was, th that whole year was horrible. And, and uh, I even ended up having a torn muscle in my leg. I was uh, training after, you know, after the funeral services and everything, and they restarted and everything. I was training and was just doing some easy 150s off the curb. And the last one that I did, I, you know, I was easing up just getting ready to stop. And all of a sudden I felt this pull, this pop in my right leg behind my knee. And, you know, you think, you know, well, uh, no, that, that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> you know, but then I found out that it did. And the, when I started trying to walk, all of a sudden I collapsed 
and they took me in to see the doctor and everything. They worked on it. Good thing that we had a few days before I had the, the finals. And um, I actually tried to pull out, but the team wouldn't let me. And they said, you know, even if you're 80%, you're better than whoever else we had. And so I ran that. I'll never forget that. I ran that four by 400 in excruciating pain until the last hundred meters. And from off the curve down to the finish line where I had to pass the baton off, I don't, I don't even know what happened. I, I felt nothing. I heard nothing. I, all I knew is that I came off the curve and I was saying, Lord have mercy. Cause I could hear the Australian girl coming up on me. And the next thing I knew I was passing the baton. And so there, that was a little divine inter, intersection there that, took place in my life. And, um, that's, a, that's a whole nother story, but what happened in the, in 72, I also ended up running and stopping at the wrong line because the official, I was in lane one in the semifinals and the official said to me, you will start here and finish here because you're in lane one. Well, he was wrong. And they were taking the first four so the first three were coming in together, um, right in front of me. And so they slowed down to a walk. So I slowed down and I walked, but I walked side going off the field. And when I turned around, I saw this, the English girl driving toward what I didn't know what she was driving toward. She was driving toward the finish line, but when I finished, I, she came over to me and she said, why did you stop? I said, because I was finished, right? She said, no, the finish line is up there. And I was like, oh, God, no. And it took 15 minutes for them to figure out that I had uh, lost getting into the finals by three centimeters. I was, I was just sick. I mean, I'm like, what, what else can happen? You know, this, this is horrible. So I ended up, um, you know, what, running the four by four and not finishing the 800. Um, that was 72, 76. I just, uh, ran the most lethargic race you can imagine in the semifinals and, um, was challenged afterward by, um, the news media who came around me. I remember them saying to me, um, you, uh, you say you're running for Jesus. Actually, I had written a book, book, authored a book called Running for Jesus, and I had an, my first album, uh, Contemporary Gospel, um, was called Running for Jesus. And so he was saying that to me. You said you're running for Jesus. Well, what we want to know is, are you going to still run for Jesus or are you going to try something else? And so I looked at him and I was like, you know, uh, this is not a figure of my imagination. You know, I... Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And whether it be on this track or on some other track in the world, I will always run for Jesus. And so it was a, quite a time that I had an opportunity to actually minister my faith to the world because they, they put me on all these cameras to answer this question. <laughs> and well, 
I think that you're the perfect minister for the Olympics because you've, you've experienced it all, the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, the wrong yes. line and injury and even the boycott and, and the massacre of 72. I mean, it, it, I could not imagine a better person than you. But one thing that I also jumps out me when I look at the 76 results is, I mean, I'm just going to name off the countries of the top eight women. Soviet Union, Bulgaria, East Germany, East Germany, Soviet Union, Bulgaria, East Germany, and Romania. I mean, knowing what we know now, probably all of those women were on steroids or drugs at, at some level. How were you aware that, that drugs was taking over the sport? Were any U.S. women on drugs? Were you ever tempted to do drugs? How, how big of a, of a thing was that? Because it seems like since then, all the way up to now, drugs and track and field, you can't get away from it. True. Uh, for the U.S. women, it was just starting. So we didn't know that much about it, we, but we could tell by looking at the the manliness of a, a lot of the competitors that we were running against. We're like, you know, they're, they're taking something. Um, I was aware, but I didn't really pay it any attention because I could still hang with them. Um, unfortunately, I remember training at the uh, Colorado Springs camp, uh, campus one year, uh, in preparation, probably preparation for the 1980 games. When one of the American coaches walked up to me, I had, I was on the track. It was my, my time to be on the track, but he wanted to do a time tryout with his girls who were basically sprinters 400 and down. And I ended up almost beating his top girl. And he, he came over and he said, I had no idea you had that type of speed. And I said, yeah, I used to run, run sprints. And um, he took me around, walked with me around to the back of the track and started talking. And he said, you could be the greatest half miler ever lived. And I said, you know, I didn't know where he was coming from. I was like, well, I'm working really hard and, um, you know, we're trying some new things with me as in as far as uh, weights are concerned, you know, and I'm just <laughs> sharing with him, not knowing where he's coming from. And he says, you don't understand. I'm telling you, you could be the greatest ever half mile woman ever lived if you just took if you just took some steroids. And I, it stopped me in my tracks. And I said, what did you say? It's if, if you just took a little something that will help, will help you, nobody could beat you and nobody would be able to, to break your records. So I looked at him and I said, first of all, I speak to thousands of young people, kids in schools across this nation. How do you expect me to stand in front of them and lie? I said, because this would be a lie. I'm not coming to them with my God-given gift. I'm coming th to them with some type of synthetic help. And, and I want them to uh, develop their character and be honest and trustworthy. And how can I stand in front of them? And I said, the, and, and the other thing, um, and, and this may sound a little religious to you, but what do I tell the Lord when, when I stand before him? And he says, what did you do with what I gave you? You know, I have to answer to the Lord for my gift. You don't. 
And he said, well, I'm not talking about all that religious stuff. And I said, I'm not either, but I'm trying to answer your question because this is a lot more than just trying to um, be the best in the world. If I can't be the best in the world with who I am and what I've been given, then somebody else needs to be. But I'm going to give it the best shot I have. I'm going to work hard as I can. I'm going to take my gift and develop it to its highest potential and then give it back. And he said, okay, well, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, and he walked off. Sad thing about that, this, this guy got caught and he was expelled for the rest of his life for, for ever doing anything with track and field ever again. Do you, can you say who he was or is he keeping that secret? I, I'd rather not. Yeah. We're almost out of time, but later on that summer, you, I you got plenty one, of time. <laughs> okay. Later on that summer or 76, after you, you know, didn't make the final, you did run a 157.9, which ended up being the American record all the way through, through. So you broke two at the Olympic trials, which was the first sub two. You don't stop there. You improve all the way to 157.9 at the U.S. USSA USSR meet, I guess, in College Park, Maryland. Right. But you're only third in that race because these, you know, probably drugged up Russian women beat you. What was that like to, I mean, you're running two seconds faster than you ever have before. You get the American record, but you're only third in the race. So were you excited, thrilled, or, or and then also how, how do you, are you running so much faster because they're helping pull you to these fast times? Or is this training advanced a lot between 1976 and 1968? No, what actually happened is um, I was third, but the the second Russian girl, she and I came in dead head. Both of us came in at the same time and leaned, and they just gave it to her. Uh, but uh, it was a unique time for me because – um, she and I began to talk to each other afterward and found out not only were we uh, half mile runners, but we also had had an uh, unsuccessful marriage. Both of us was divorced. Both of us had little boys and both of us uh, were looking at thinking this is it. You know, we're finished. <laughs> I'm finished. So it was but it was exciting for me because uh, 157, shoot. That's that's still competitive now. And um, I was just so excited uh, to have run. That was actually a tribute run because, as I said, I thought that was my last run. And I had actually said, Lord, thanks for giving me the gift that you've given me as a runner. This is for you. And so for 650 meters, I was leading. In fact, the coaches, the Russian coach ran out on the track screaming at his women Come, as I was coming off the last curve, uh, realizing she is not slowing down. She's not slowing down. You've got to go get her now. And actually, he could have disqualified his girls by doing that because you don't suppose to run out on the track and, and act crazy. But you know, I had actually led that whole thing because it was a tribute run. And then you came back another Olympic trials. I mean, four more years later, 158.30 to win that one. And that was your fastest one and your last one, which is crazy. But 
uh, one, I'm just amazed how, how you kept getting faster. I am interested in the training. Was was training for you much different in 1980 yeah. and 1968? Oh, and yeah. also, I'm kind of curious what you could think you could run now, but maybe first sort of talk about the training, how you train. I mean, not now, now, but like. I, uh, during that time, I uh, had started doing weight training. I had a different coach that had come up from Indiana who worked with me, and he started me on a, a weight training regimen that was new. And and that's one of the things that kept me under two, two minutes. Most of the times when I was r- uh, running that last uh, two years, um, 78, 79, I was actually, <laughs> excuse me, actually running under two minutes uh, consistently because of the, the difference in my training. And ha- I know, had I trained like that Earlier, I I could have easily been under two minutes. There was a time that I actually um, ran uh, a one fifty. I was on a one fifty two pace in Italy, Radio, uh, Italy, and um, it, again it was a tribute run. I just said, Lord, I'm going to take out as fast as I can. Just help me finish. Uh, and what happened is that after about 700 meters, I hit a wall because I hadn't trained for that type of race. But I hit a wall. I thought I had hit a wall before, but I hadn't, apparently, and um, ended up running a 159 flat. But uh, then is when I, it hit me that I had the capability of running a 152. But that's scary to even think about. I mean, that's scary for anyone to think about. But I think with proper training. We were debating this last week, I think, on the podcast. Again, I think you would totally be competitive. I mean, do you agree with this assessment? This was my argument. If we put you in the Olympic trials next year, in in the peak of your life, I think you could give Ajay Wilson a run for her money. Oh, Ajay is is my protege, and I've been kind of pouring into her. Um, I remember a few years back when she was running uh, as a front runner, and um, it's it's amazing because she came to me and she said, "I noticed that you are a front runner, and everybody tells me that's not the way to run this race." I said, "Don't listen to anybody." Do not listen to, I said, because you're going to get better and better and better. It's the more you run this way that you're running. And so I, and I gave her a few other tips and uh, I'm really pulling for her. I really am. Um, I love that young lady. She's, she's a very precious woman and uh, one with a lot of integrity Um and one who is really looking at becoming a chaplain later on. So, yeah, but I don't think, I, I don't know if I could, <laughs> that, that would be quite a feat. I was so excited for her when she ran at 155. Woohoo! I was like, yes, you know, because she's going to pull other half miles in from America. She's going to p- be able to pull them. And then, you know, we talked about the controversial steroids and stuff in, in the 70s in the Eastern Bloc, but the other thing that's been more recent is sort of 
the the intersex women competing. I mean, obviously, it's actually interesting to see what your take is. I mean, God made these people like this, you know, Castro Semenya, Francine Nansabo. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people think they should compete in the women's category without some sort of restrictions. Have you been following that? And what are your thoughts on the situation? I have. Um, now you're getting into some really heavy stuff here. <laughs> well, no, I, 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 mean, I talked to my wife about it. She, 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 I personally don't think they should be allowed to compete. I mean, I just think that it's the same. It's no different to me than the transgender women. I feel I feel for these women. But to me, it's just not fair. But and my wife, who's not really a track and field fan, she, she was, she's like, oh, you have so much sympathy for Castro Semenya. I'm like, yeah, I do as a person. But I, I think you got to separate the two. But it's, yeah, certainly not an easy situation, but it's been one that, I mean, imagine Ajay. Imagine how famous Ajay Wilson would be, or even Alicia Montani, if you talk about, if you took out all the steroids in front of her and all these races. If, if you took out all the intersex women and steroids women ahead of Alicia Montano, she'd probably be an Olympic champion like you. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I have talked with them as well and wanted to know how they felt about this because I'm not in that situation other than, you know, what I was looking at back during my time, but it wasn't as, as big and they didn't know how to cover it up and, and a whole lot of stuff. But their situation is really different uh, because People are wanting to legalize, um, you know, transgender running. And, of course, with Semenyes, um, uh, I met her, and um, she reminded me of um, the Czechoslovakian girl that I met when I was running that I thought was a 200-meter male. That's how rough she looked. But... My my thing is, um, biologically, they're going to have to decide, you know, what what they're going to do because women in the middle distance are really complaining. I mean, of all different nations, are complaining uh, about unfairness, and I think what they're trying to look at is how many um, test testosterone hormones are in your body that, that they can, they can allow before there is a cutoff and say, no, that's too much. You're, you're more male than you are female. Um, so Menyes, when I think when she was, uh, a baby, uh, was, um, was looked at by the medical team and weighed was whether she had more estrogen or testosterone. And at the time she had more estrogen, but she had a lot of testosterone also. So they tricked, they, they pulled her over to female. So, you know, that's, that's basically what she's doing. But when they, they tested her in these last couple years, her testosterone was higher. So, it put her in a different category. It's interesting because I told my husband when I first saw her run on television, I said, you know, she's running like a male. She, her gait, she has a gait that runs like a male, not like a female because a female's hips, um, her, your hips go out where it can carry a, a baby. Her hips, her hips were turned in. 
uh, like a male's and she ran like a male. I thought, huh, there's something different about her. And then when I met her, uh, I had to be careful of what my face looked like because when she finally said hello to me, her voice was deeper than my husband's. And, and she had, you know, facial hair, beard, kind of light, light beard and a mustache. And, um, she was a nice person, very nice person. I mean, I, I met her a few times too, Have obviously you? just in the media, but the, I remember the first time I met her, I was so shocked how deep her voice was. And now I'm kind of used to it, but it just shows it's just sort of a, I mean, it, it's a, the world is way more complex than we make it out to be. I mean, cause I'm talking about some of the stuff that was going on in 1968 and I can't believe it. And all these protests and how poorly black people were treated in America and women as well. And you probably, if you fast forwarded 50 years, you couldn't believe that we'd be talking about whether Castor Semenya, what category she competes in and then right. the coronavirus would be ruining the world. I mean, wow. <laughs> the, the, uh, the coronavirus is, that's a whole different thing something this had actually this has nothing to do with sports and you have to be careful of allowing sports to become your god because this will kill it it it's it's um i i i listen to some people who who selfishly talk about you know well so sad that we you know bring the kids out we, we can still do this we can still train you know and I'm like wait a minute there are people dying by the thousands or going through hellish type of severe suffering and you're talking about doing what I mean this is not a time to be self-centered and look in it's a time when Actually, God is calling us to look out to each other and to love each other uh, in a way that maybe we hadn't even thought about doing it before. And uh, before we got on the air, you know, you were talking about how you still counsel these Olympic athletes and you were going to be a chaplain in Tokyo. And that so many athletes are so caught up in being the Olympian that they're really struggling now with the Olympics being postponed. Yeah. So what are you telling them now? I've been sharing with them my experience of the 1980 uh, boycott and that how hard I ha had trained and come out of come out of my uh, my so-called retirement and um, to to make the team, you know, and to give it everything I had uh, to try to give it my best. And then all of a sudden looming over this while I was training was the the knowledge or the the understanding that we could, we could boycott. Then I'm trying to figure out, okay, should should I continue on? What's the purpose in all in all of this? Why why did I come out of uh, of my training, out of my um, retirement to train again? And these were questions I was asking God because I felt like He was the one that called me out. So now what? And in my in my personal time of prayer, I felt like the Lord said, I, I need you. And I thought, I don't know what that means, but I'll just keep on training. So I did. And I share with them, you know, the struggles that I had and the questions that I had some days when I was out there by myself training um, 
and pushing myself beyond what I w- wanted to, to, to do. Um, and then wondering, okay, is it, I hope that this for some reason is going to work out in some good. The other thing is that I, um, I, I did very well at the Olympic trials. I broke my Olympic trials record. I was number one. I had prayed with the young ladies, my competitors for the finals and every last one of them ran their personal best, (laughs) which was interesting. Um, and then I was named the most outstanding female athlete of the meet. So I'm thinking, okay, well maybe that's what he meant. Uh, that, that I would have the opportunity. And that something else that was strange that happened. I had a, a dream before I came out to the track for the finals. And I saw myself running in the stadium alone. And, and then there were spectators all around, you know, in, in, in the stadium and they started praising God. And I thought I woke up cause I was like, nah, uh, uh-uh. That does not happen at a track meet. So (laughs) I call myself, you know, doing that. But what happened is it actually came to being because when I started off, I did not see that in my lane, I was in lane eight again, and there was a photographer laying flat out in my lane going to get a shot of us coming out, you know, (laughs) after the gun shot off coming around the curve. Well, I, I didn't see him until I came around the curve and there he is. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, what do I do now? Cause you know, I didn't want to impede my competitor in the seventh lane. So I picked up really fast and moved over and just edging into the seventh lane. But I then kept going heading for the 200 meters well, by this time, the people, and you know how uh, track uh, smart the Oregonians are, that the people in the stands had seen me on TV and heard me do a, a concert while I was there. And a bunch of them had come out to encourage me, you know, about making my fourth team. And they thought I was running for a world record. And I wasn't. <laughs> And all of a sudden, people were saying, run for the glory of God. Run for Jesus, Madeline. Come on, Madeline, give him the glory. And they, the whole stadium start picking this up because whatever works, they, they'll do it. And, and I, then I thought, okay, am I still dreaming? And if so, please do not wake me. You know. And after I finished that, you know, I was interviewed and um, – had an opportunity to share my testimony of, you know, how I was as a little girl, a sickly little girl and how I was found and whatever. So uh, this went on. So I'm thinking, okay, this is the big thing that God wants me for. Well, we went to the white house and uh, the team because you can't boycott without a team. So you had to make team. And so the team got a congressional medal of honor for making the team, even though the boycott, you know, was prevalent then. And while I was there, I was captain of the women's track team and the other captains of the other track, uh, other sports came together and they said, we need somebody to give the response to the presidential address to the American people on the steps of the Capitol. And 
how this happened that they chose me, I don't know. Cause I'm thinking, I don't even know these people. Uh, but they chose me to give, give the speech uh, along with another guy who was a modern pentathlete. And all he said is, listen, just write it out and tell me what you want me to say. I was like, Hey, wait, wait, you know, I don't know what to say. So about two o'clock that morning, I, I just gave up. I didn't know what to say. And finally, it's like the Lord said, uh, okay, finally. And th- it just started coming within 10 minutes. I wrote out a speech about America, the family. And I shared with how we as athletes, this is how we represent our family to the world is to compete. And I said, but at the same time, as a part of the family, the father has the last word. And I said, in this situation where our president has made a decision um, for us not to go because the Russians are breaking a rule, a major rule there. You're not to host the games and be in war at the same time. And they refuse to shut down their war with Afghanistan and host the games and basically said to the world, you're going to come whether you like it or not. And, and we are not going to get out of Afghanistan. And so that's when President Carter said, no, we're not. If you don't come out of Afghanistan or at least shut the war down for the games, then we're not coming. And so with that decision, um, I I said, you know, yeah, we have from A to Z, you know, some that don't like the president now, don't, don't appreciate what he did or whatever, to those on the opposite end who like, we are patriots, we are part of this family and, and we will stand behind him and everything in between. And the one thing that I requested was support. I said, you know, as part of the family, we really need support from the corporate level and, um, for them to step up. And that's what happened. It became a prophetic word. And within the next four years, we had the backing, we had extra money, um, that we, Peter Ubrah put together a beautiful economic package. And, uh, it's been going on like that backing ever since. So that's what I share and I, I try to share with and encourage them that it doesn't matter what else happens outside of something that you're going for. You will never stop being an athlete. That's what you were born to be. That's what you're created to be. You are beautifully and wonderfully made and your soul knows it. And so it's not about something causing you not to be who you are and who you were born to be. You are just that because that's the gift that God has given to you. Um, so I, I try to encourage them. Those who, um, said, you know, have said to me, well, Madeline, this was going to be my last time. And I'm, I'm not sure if I'll be able to go on to an, another year, uh, or, you know, this is it for me. Um, and then others, it's interesting because you have the other scale where others had were injured and hurt. And now they have another chance to heal and get back on course for uh, training and come back out. So they're, they're looking at it with a hopeful look. And then you have those who 
hadn't made the team yet, but almost, it was almost time to make the team. They have to re-gear. Um, but uh, one of the things I do find is that very few are saying, you know, we didn't do the right thing to postpone it because they realize it's not worth your life to go and just be what put together with people. And then what if you, what if you went there and you're, somebody has the, the, the virus and you get sick and don't get a chance to, to, uh, participate or what, what happens if, uh, you know, you're there and people start dying. I mean, that, that's not a good, <laughs> you have to look at the reality of what the possibilities of this is by forcing something that was not supposed to happen. So most of them are saying, you know, yeah, we, we, we realize that that was the right thing to do. and We'll just go on. You're having Tokyo in 2021. I mean, yeah, it's not what the athletes wanted, but it's much better than not having the Olympics like you got deprived of in 1980. So I'm hoping to be in Tokyo next year and hopefully we'll meet you. But Are you going to be trying to run? No, 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 no. I'm too old for that. I'm 45. I'm 46, actually. Oh, you're young. I'll be there with a journalist. journalist. He's only 43. Well, then he made the team. It's true. Everyone's running older these days. Isn't that, isn't that the truth? Especially the longer it gets. That's right. I mean, a guy I used to compete about, just Abdi Abdurrahman made the Olympic team, and he's, what, 42, John? It's kind of crazy. 43. 43. So, no, no competing for me. I'll be there cheering like you. I want to meet you in person next year there. so That would be great. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we call this a podcast? I think I think you've asked all the questions. You did a really good job of asking some very um, point, pointed questions that, um, that I appreciate having the opportunity to answer. Um, you guys keep running. And uh, the Lord bless and keep you and uh, keep you safe and healthy so that we can see each other next year. <laughs> I'm going to do my part on this end to do what I can to help the, the athletes and uh, be there for them next year. Yeah, keep praying for everybody. I do have one question now, though. At the very beginning off air, you were talking about marathons and, you know, you're not a 5K runner. You're not a 10K runner. What's the longest you've ever run in your life? Seven miles. Seven miles. And would you do that back in the day when you were training? Um, I did that back in the day when I was training, yes. Um, I don't know what made me do that. I, I basically never ran that long. Even even in training for the half mile, usually my longest, my long days would be four miles. But, you know, I'd start off with like a six-minute flat mile and then then I take it down so well it definitely worked and your career is amazing and I hope I'm glad that we sort of discovered it I feel kind of ignorant for not knowing as much about you as I should have but you're an inspiration and that's not your fault (laughs) well I'm I'm a a journalist I'm I'm a track and field journalist I'm supposed to know this stuff Yeah, both on and off the track, Madeline, it's been been really great to to learn about you and be inspired by you. So thank you so much. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you as well. And well, then let let this not be the last time, eh? Yeah, for sure. In this crazy and difficult time, if you're looking for products to help perform better, 
Our friends at thefeed.com have you covered. They're sending our team a fresh supply of Martin and their new AeroFit device. Check it all out, thefeed.com slash let's run and use code let's run to save 15% off your entire order.